for a moment, I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them if you had to order coffee at a cafe, what coffee would you order? What coffee? Go. All right, how do we go with that? Um, there's actually a chart on the screen. It's probably too small. I can't see it from here. Of all the different kinds of coffee and what they are. And I wonder if you are enough of a coffee or cafe fan to know the differences between, for example, a flat white, a latte, a cappuccino, a uh, short black, a long black. Um, what is a ristretto? What does doppio mean? Right? All those kind of words. Do you know what it is? Do you know what the difference is? Just as a show of hands, who, who would order a flat white? Just... Boring old flat whites, that's me. Who would go for a cappuccino? Cappuccino. Who goes for the latte? Yeah. Who goes for the strong stuff, the long black or the short black? Okay. Now, who orders mocha? <laughs> go on. <laughs> that is the only coffee. I don't mind if you do anything else. But mocha is a disgrace. I'll tell you why mocha is a disgrace, especially if you love coffee. Mocha means you can't make up your mind. Do you want coffee or do you want chocolate? Just decide. Don't try and do both. Right? The chocolate will wreck the coffee. And if you're a chocoholic, the coffee will wreck the chocolate. So just make up your mind, are you going to go with chocolate or coffee? Don't try and blend it in. That's why I don't believe that mocha should ever be something that you order at a cafe. Here endeth the rant. No, seriously though, I, it's, it's really not that big of an issue. In fact, I think for a lot of people, mocha is sort of the gateway drug. You may not even like coffee, but you'll think I'll order a mocha and then before you know it, you may be uh, actually hooked on caffeine. Um, but the reason I mentioned mocha is because I think seriously though, and here's where we get to serious part, and it has nothing to do with coffee really, I think mocha is a, a really interesting metaphor for, I think, what the kind of Christianity a lot of people go for nowadays. What do I mean by that? The kind of Christianity where we can't decide whether we want in or out. Or as a, a song uh, that quite a few years ago, a, a band called Casting Crown, they put it like this. I think it captures mocha Christianity perfectly. It says this, Somewhere between the hot and the cold. Somewhere between the new and the old. Somewhere between who I am and who I used to be. Somewhere in the middle, you'll find me. Somewhere between the wrong and the right. Somewhere between the darkness and the light. Somewhere between who I was and who you're making me. Somewhere in the middle, you'll find me. Just how close can I get, Lord, to my surrender without losing all control? That is the tragedy of much of Western Christianity. That's us in Australia too. We opt for this mocha, blended, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, Christianity. Double-minded, half-hearted, neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm Christianity. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember in Deuteronomy 6, the chapter before the one we're looking at today, God wants His people to be all in. To love the Lord, He says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That is, as I put it last week, single-minded, wholehearted, 
unreserved. And God hates mocker Christianity. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 7 is still about that. Loving God with all that you are, unreserved. Remember, this is decision time. Israel, 40 years after being rescued from slavery in Egypt, are again at the edge of the promised land. And this time around, they have another chance where they failed 40 years ago. They have another chance, a new generation, to go in and conquer, to take hold of the land that God wants them to have. But they would need to go in obediently and conquer it. And the inhabitants of the land at the moment are Canaanites. Lots of different cities, towns, tribes, nations. Seven nations are mentioned in Deuteronomy 7. And in order to go in and ensure that their love for God, the Lord, their God, Yahweh, is going to be continued to be wholehearted, single-minded, unreserved, they would have to make sure that their love for Yahweh would not be watered down, contaminated, blended like a bad coffee, as they go into a land where there was idolatry and unfaithfulness all around them. They had to remain pure, complete, all in for God. And that's what Deuteronomy 7 is about, applying that. Now, this is a hard passage, okay? This is a hard passage. I thought about skipping 7, going straight to 8 this week, but God would not have me do that. So here we are. It's a hard passage because you... The kind of war that's commanded in verse 2 and following, you'll notice is total destruction. And that sounds in a post 9-11 world a lot like jihad. A lot like ethnic cleansing. A lot like genocide. A lot like holy war. And that is hard to stomach, all right? And we're going to have to wrestle with that today because it's in the Bible. And we don't just skip bits that are uncomfortable for us. Not at this church anyway. Now I want to give you a hint. This command to Israel a couple of thousand years ago is not going to be directly applicable to us today in the same way. We're not going to be asked to go to war. Thankfully, you'll know that's where I'm going. Okay, few. But it still does apply to us. And where we're going to end up is it's going to apply to God's people today in some ways even more radically, even though it's not about war in the physical sense. So we'll, we'll come to that later on. But let's pray and let's really help Ask God to help us as we tackle this passage. You might just want to take some time to be expectant that God is going to speak to you today, because He will. And I'll pray to that end. Father God, we come to a part of Your Word that's not always comfortable for us, and there's going to be lots of questions, perhaps some that we won't even be able to answer today. But Father, above all, we pray, I pray that You would help us meet You this afternoon, that you would speak by your spirit, that we would actually hear you. It's not my words that I want them to hear. It's your words. So Father, please pour out your Holy Spirit and speak to each one of us and help us to be expectant that today we would meet the God of the universe in your words. Amen. Okay, you'll need your outlines today. You'll need to keep Deuteronomy 7 open because it's a little bit of, uh, yeah, good thinking, hard thinking that we'll need to do. Okay, so point number one. I will get to the uh, difficult and objectionable war stuff, but I, I want to firstly get to the guts of the passage. And the guts of the passage and what drives it all is verse 6. So have a look at verse 6 again. We read it earlier, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. The first word is really important, the word for. For is the reason. All the verses that come before it, 
This is the reason for the commands about destroying the nations, about that kind of total annihilation, destruction. The reason is, verse 6, Israel are a people holy to Yahweh, to the Lord, their God. So we got to understand what holiness means, right? What does it mean to be holy? Well, holiness or to be holy is to be set apart, right? To be set apart set apart to God so that they're special to Him and set apart so that they're special for His purposes. Helpful way of thinking about it is the Nintendo Switch. All right, okay. How is that related to holiness? Here we go. Who's got a Switch? Hands up, we do at home. Okay, you know, you know a Nintendo Switch as well as a PlayStation, as well as an Xbox. They're all computers, right? That's what they are. They are computers. But they are computers that are set apart for what? What purpose? Games, right? They're holy for games. In that, you don't use a switch to do your uni assignments on. You, know, you accountants aren't going to open up a switch to do your Excel spreadsheets. You're not going to use a switch even to do video editing. I'm sure if you could hack it, and probably John Walsh could, you could probably do those kind of things, but that's not what a switch is for. It's holy. It's set apart for another purpose, for games. Now, Israel are holy to God in that they're chosen by God, chosen for God, in order that they might be special, holy, set apart, treasured possession is his word. They're special to him in a way that no other nation was. That's what it means to be holy. Now, just a side note, if you are a follower of Jesus today, you are holy to God and in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that Christians have been chosen by God before the creation of the world to be holy to Him, to be His treasured possession. We were predestined, the Bible says, to be His sons and daughters. It's good to be holy because God chose you, Christians today, like He did Israel then, holy to Him. For him. So why though, why Israel? I mean, what was it about them that made them so special as opposed to all the nations around them? They're more deserving, were they better looking? Well, look at verse 7, the next verse. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Right, verse 7 answers the question, why did the Lord set his affection on you? And why did he choose you? Verse 8 gives the answer. It's because he loves you. Which actually is not much of an answer. It's like saying, God, why do you love me? And he says, I love you because I love you because I love you. But that's actually the only reason that's that's actually, it's actually the only reason that gives you assurance, isn't it? I mean, you think about it. If God says to, to, to Israel or to us, I love you because you complete that. I love you because you are a better people, because you are more obedient. I love you because you have something about you that is just so attractive. Or, or if you're a Christian today, I love you because you have done this or that for me. 
then you know what? You can never be absolutely sure that God will keep loving you, can you? If God's reason for loving you is based on your performance or something about you, rather than something about Him, that He loves you because He loves you, because He loves you, then you will never be sure. And I just want to say at this point, I think some of us live in that, that up and down kind of perception of God's love for us. Are you like that? That, that one, one, one week to another, you might feel this week, I've, I've done okay, you know, I read my Bible this week, I managed to get to church this week, God loves me more this week. The next week, oh, I really messed up, oh gosh, you know, I didn't even have a chance to pray this week, God must love me less this week. Do, are you in that sort of rut? God loves you because of your performance, rather than what the Bible says, God loves you because He loves you because He loves you. It's because of His initiative, because His choice, because of His goodness, and only because of that, that He loves you. No, it's the same for Israel, it's the same for us. Right, so we've got this verses 6, 7, and 8. And these three verses are key to understanding the rest of the chapter. Because being holy, right, the who you are question, being holy has implications for what you do. Because of who Israel was, it had implications for what they were now to do. Because when you are set apart for God, the God who is pure and just and righteous and loving, then you got to be pure and just and righteous and loving as well. You see, if you're holy to a God like Him, like the God of the Bible, that has massive implications for your way of life. It's not just something that happens to you once and you ignore it. No, it changes everything. Who you are flows into what you do. And here in Deuteronomy 7, that flows into how they were now to interact with the inhabitants of the land, how they were now to take hold of the promises that God gave them. And so there are appropriate and inappropriate ways for Israel to act from now on, just like there are appropriate and inappropriate ways for use, to use your Nintendo Switch. Okay? Don't use them to do your taxes. Use them to play games. Because a Switch is holy for games. And God's people are holy for God's purposes. So, in that context, let's come to point number two. One way that Israel, and this is not the only way, but the way that we're going to talk about in Deuteronomy 7, one way that they were to apply holiness is the conquest of the promised land. And verse 2, remember again, pretty stark words. He says, you must destroy them totally. Now that word, it's a couple of words, but they come from the same Hebrew root. The word... In Hebrew, you can say this with me, so in a moment I'm going to get you to say some Hebrew with me, because it's a fun word to say, because it involves using your, your spit. It's the word cherem. Can you do that? Cherem? Cherem, right? Cherem. You've got to get that. Yeah. Cherem. Um, that word has religious ceremonial connotations, ideas. Um, to put it in English, it's a destruction, yes, total totally destroy, it says, but it's a consecration destruction, I'll call it, a consecration destruction. To consecrate is to make something sacred, all right, to set something apart. It's related to the word holy, holy, sacred, same idea. Okay, so a consecration destruction, or cherem, is to, is to destroy or conquer the, the way that they were to do war, destroy things in a way that set, sets these things that are about to destroy, sets them apart, give them over to God, all right? That's what it means. It's a, it's a religious idea. It's to give them over to God. This is for you, God. And so that meant that even as they conquered these people, they were to take no plunder. 
right? Usually in war, that's part of the fun of war, right? You, you go and you destroy, um, you conquer, and then you get to take the silver and the gold. Blah, blah, blah. No, not, not harem. Everything was to be destroyed and given over to God. But it also meant not just plunder. Other parts of the Bible, it's in Joshua, it's in Exodus, and this is where the really difficult part. It meant that as they went to a city and conquer it, total destruction or harem or consecration destruction not only meant that the fighting men were to be killed, civilian men were also to be killed. Not only the men were to be killed, the women were to be killed. Not only the women, but the children were to be killed. Not only the men, women, and children, but the animals were to be killed. It was like scorched earth. No survivors, right? no plunder, everything given over in destruction, consecrated to God. That's what we're talking about here, annihilation. And in terms of the religion and culture of that city that you were to conquer or the nation, it was total destruction. Wipe them from the memory of the earth. Culture, religion, language even, gone. Now that is harem. And we, understandably, and people all through the centuries, not just us today, have real problems with it. Because this sounds so wrong, doesn't it? I mean, how could God order something like that? Are we even talking about the same God? Well, I'm not going to have all the answers. Not not even close. Um, I have put down a link for you if you want to chase it up. It's quite a, a long chapter from a commentary that lists a lot more things that I'm not going to be able to talk about, so have a look at it when you get home. But I will just mention four points below. Again, it's, this is just trying to get us into f- maybe a beginning of the way of thinking about it. It's not going to answer all our questions, all of our objections. But let's see how we go, okay? The first one I think we need to keep in mind is this. Horrible as they are, these commands are unique and unrepeatable. All right, this kind of war, harem, concentra- consecration, destruction is only applied to these wars against these Canaanite cities and lands and nations at this time in Israel's history. Only those, no more. Not before nor afterwards is it ever applied again to Israel and what they were to do to other nations. In fact, we know this also because in Deuteronomy chapter 20, don't turn to it, but in chapter 20, you're going to get a list of general instructions about war. At the end of it, it will also mention the harem, the consecration destruction, but the majority of the chapter is about all the other instances of war. And you've actually found out that by ancient standards, all the other instructions about war are pretty good if there's such a good thing, okay? I mean, in that, if Israel were to choose to take other cities that weren't consecrated to God in this way, well, they, they could do it, but first they had to offer peace. And if the city surrenders, then they were to spare all the women and children and non-fighting people. And if the city did go to war, they couldn't also kill everyone, right? They were to limit the amount of damage. And in fact, it, it, even, um, it even limits the, amount of, the number of trees they could destroy, because God even cares about the environment. Okay, that's, that's the normal kind of war. And in ancient standards, that is pretty humanitarian in terms of war policy. So do you see what I mean? God had at this point in time, right, only unique, unrepeatable war instructions about these particular conquests in these particular cities. 
God had decided that the land of Canaan, when it came to that point in history, were to be given to his special people in that way. But it was unique, it was unrepeatable, it wasn't to be repeated in their history, and it's certainly not to be repeated in our history. You got that? So that's number one. It doesn't make it easier to stomach, but we've got to know that these are unique and unrepeatable commands. Number two, we're still talking about war though. Okay, we are still talking about war, and really there is no such thing as a good war. Um, those of you who were alive to remember the first war where on the screens we saw kind of the kind of technology that we had now was um, Desert Storm 1, so when the U.S. first um, invaded Iraq, and we saw these images, and, and you've seen them all, because even if you weren't alive during Desert Storm 1, nowadays you see what? Satellite images, black and white, it's almost like a computer game, a smart bomb or a drone, you know, hit a target. And it's pretty like, it's pretty clinical, right? You don't see any blood, you don't see any destruction, you don't even see any people. And that's the impression of war that we're now given, that it's precise, it's clinical. But that's not actually the reality, and that's just a good PR exercise. Because really, there is nothing clean and clinical about war. War is horrible. War always equals death. Deuteronomy 7 reminds us that we are in a world full of wars back then as well as today, which reminds us that we are in a fallen world, that we're outside of the Garden of Eden the way that God intended it, as Jay said. And so we've got to remember that the Bible has, it takes place in a fallen world and that there is, and this is my second point, there is a bigger story. There is a bigger story of salvation that we've got to keep in mind. And this bigger story started as soon as human beings turned away from God. And in fact, other parts of the Bible say it even started even before that. Because God always had a plan to reverse sin. He always had a plan to restore all that was lost. To bring a world where there would be no wars. Right? Whether this kind of war or even what we call the clinical, humanitarian kind of wars. God was bringing a plan so there'd be no wars, no brokenness, no fallenness. And here's the thing. The plan involved Israel. And this is what we've got to keep in mind. That this is a part of a bigger plan of salvation where Israel being chosen to be holy to God actually has a purpose of salvation for the world. You see, God's plan was that through blessing Israel, all nations would one day be blessed. And so the prophet Isaiah has this picture of all the nations outside of Israel streaming to, to, to Israel's capital, to the temple, because through Israel, they would come to get to know the true and living God. And this could not happen, you see, if Israel wasn't holy. You got that? If Israel was just to be like the rest of the world, then no country would be attracted to Israel's God. Because this was an attraction by holiness, or attraction by sanctification. Sanctifies to make holy. Right? The nations would enter into salvation because they would see Israel as the model nation. And so the model nation had to be as holy and pure as possible. And for her to be contaminated would actually mean that God's plan of salvation for all the nations around Israel could not be achieved. Because the land and Israel in the land was to be like a new Eden. And Eden was like a temple. 
And this was to be like the Eden Temple 2.0. And that's why this destruction, this consecration, right, was primarily about, not even about people ultimately, it was about getting rid of, uprooting all of the religion that was in the land. This was crucial that after they took possession of Canaan, there was only the worship of the true God. Because only then could the nations that worshipped false gods see how attractive life was lived under the the care of the true and living God. So um, have a look at the end of the chapter with me. We didn't read it out earlier. Verse 25, 725. This is why part of this total destruction, consecration, the harem, is this. Verse 25, the images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not cover cover the silver and gold on them. That's why they couldn't take plunder. Do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Because everything in these nations that were left behind, buildings, gold, silver, were all religious. And every single religious item, every single item that was left had the potential of contaminating and taking God's holy people away from their calling and their holiness. And the salvation of the world was at stake. That's the bigger picture. It's a little bit like cleaning out a wound. Imagine if you had no antibiotics and you had this festering, disgusting, pussy, smelly wound, right? What would it take to clean it out? It's going to be painful to clean it out because you would have to dig through all of the pus and the gunk and it would be really painful. But if you didn't do that, then you are going to be liable to have it infected again. It had to be a complete clean out. And that's Kind of what was going on with the land of Canaan. God needed to have a brand new slate, a clean place where his people could then achieve their purpose as being holy and attract the world. Okay, so that's a bigger picture of salvation. But second, uh, thirdly, there is also another bigger story, and it's of judgment. So have a look. Um, I'm going to show you chapter 9, verse 4. Really important passage, a few chapters on. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but account of the wickedness of those nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, at that unique, unrepeatable time. You see what that passage is saying? God was using Israel at that unique, unrepeatable time as an instrument of judgment against a particularly and thoroughly wicked people. You see, for God to devote people to that kind of complete destruction means that this is a wickedness that I don't think we have any concept of the scale. Because only in two other times in history has God ever ordered that kind of destruction. One was the flood in Noah's day. The other was Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about them in the book of Genesis, okay? No other time has God ordered this kind of destruction. None. Which means the level of wickedness must be so wicked that we can't even... So this week, I listened to a podcast. And the podcast was about um, the work of International Justice Mission, a a Christian organization rescuing people from slavery. And in particular, this was talking about cyber sex trafficking of children in Southeast Asia. 
And one of the people they rescued, one of the kids they rescued was a baby. Can you, can you, can you understand that? They rescued a baby who was going to be used for cyber sex trafficking and abuse. Right? Just a baby, not even a toddler, a baby. And what was really heartbreaking was this. In 70% of these cases, the people that sell their children to cyber sex traffickers and abusers are their own family members. Their mums, their dads, their grandparents, their uncles, their aunties, 70%, their own family are selling children for abuse. Or you think of Africa, child soldiers are taught to kill. Where girls, schoolgirls are abducted and raped. This is the wickedness of our world, all right? And yet, have a think about this, yet in none of those circumstances, those times, did God ever and has God ever completely destroyed them. So what must be going on in Canaan at that time must have been wicked beyond our imagination. Do you see what I'm saying? We, I don't think we can, barely, we can barely imagine the level of wickedness that must have been there for God to have decided at that time and in that place that he would use Israel as an instrument of total destruction. Now, now you see what God was doing in a passage like Genesis 15. I, I don't have time to read all of it. But towards the end, when God is promising Abraham, who's the father of the nation of Israel, and he's saying, Abraham, in 400 years' time, your descendants will now come and take this land. Land of Canaan is prophesying about the time that we're reading about in Deuteronomy. But notice that bit in red. He says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Why wait? For the sin of the Amorites or Canaanites have not yet reached its full measure. God was willing to wait 400 years until the wickedness of these particular people got to such a measure that there was just no longer any, any recourse. Do you see what I mean? God is slow to anger. And so the level of wickedness that God was bringing about, the level of judgment, must have meant that the wickedness was so saturated. We do have a archaeological as well as biblical evidence of the kind of thing they did in Canaan. There was a god that they worshipped called Moloch. And Moloch was known for being the kind of God you offered your own children to, child sacrifice. But how they do it? Set up a big um, metal, bronze probably, statue. They would heat the statue up from within or underneath. And then the priest would take a child, put it on the burning hands of the statue, and the child would essentially get incinerated, burned to death live. And that was the offering to the kind of God that the Canaanites worshipped. We have this myth about innocent, pristine people before they get touched by civilizations all being kind of happy and, you know, wearing no clothes and everyone was much happier until civilization came. It's really generally not the case, right? So many cultures involve things like this, child sacrifice, and it was that kind of thing that was happening in Canaan. So make no mistake, these nations would have had to be saturated with wickedness to a degree that we couldn't understand if we tried and their time was up. So in a sense, if we have a problem with Deuteronomy 7, then we probably have a bigger problem with God's judgment as a whole. 
Because it's the same thing he did when he commanded the flood. It's the same thing he did when he commanded the destruction of those two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Our question sometimes and really is, well, why should God judge at all? If he's a God of love, shouldn't there be no judgment? But I hope you've seen that if we're looking at a bigger picture of salvation, a bigger story of salvation, then God could not be loving if he were not just. Remember the wound. If he were to leave sin infecting his world like a disgusting, contaminated wound and do nothing about cleaning out the wound, then there would be no healing, yeah? If he didn't care about our world enough to judge it, then he does not love our world. Now, we also need to remember, too, that God's justice is fair in that everything that he said he would do to the Canaanite nations, he actually says to his people, if you get led astray and you start worshiping other gods and you become like the Canaanites, it's going to happen to you too. All right, you see that in verses 9 to 10. We don't have time to read it out. But eventually, this is what happens to Israel. Um, we only know of about half a dozen or so Canaanite cities that Israel did obey God when it came to this kind of command. And unfortunately, the majority of the Canaanite inhabitants were not conquered, religions were not uprooted, and the result was, as you can probably imagine, and as God predicted, they did get contaminated. So here's the scary thing. Gods like Moloch became part of how Israel began to worship. A great king like the King Solomon himself tolerated this kind of worship later on in life. And so just as God had said he would do to the Canaanites because of their wickedness, what God eventually did to his own people Israel because of their wickedness, the way that they got contaminated, the way that they became like the nations around them meant that about a thousand years later, they themselves were spat out of the land because God is fair. But then last of all, we need to remember this. The Old Testament is the shadow and the New Testament is the reality. Yeah? So clarity only comes to us when we look at Jesus. Because the biggest story of salvation and judgment come together in the person of Jesus. And what he's done for the world through his death and resurrection. See, God's plan, remember this salvation plan through national Israel? Well, that actually got fulfilled when Jesus, the perfect son of Israel, was born. The perfect Israelite king, the perfect son of God. And so God's plan of salvation no longer turns about Israel, turns on Israel being that nation in that physical land as a geopolitical nation. I know some Christians disagree with that. But if you read the Bible through the whole Bible, you'll see that God's plan of salvation no longer hinges on Israel as a nation because it's been fulfilled already in Jesus. And why we cannot take Deuteronomy 7 as Christians about a command to holy war today is because, here's the thing, on the cross of Jesus, he has already fulfilled God's plan of both salvation and judgment. Only it's salvation for us and judgment on him. Because he took our place. See, on the cross... And the way that the cross is described as Jesus goes to the cross and has nails driven through his wrist and the kind of darkness that came over him. On the cross, you see, God was placing himself under the harem. 
He was placing himself under that consecration, total destruction. Because as he bore the sins of the world, he utterly destroys sin through his death. Utterly pays for it. It's completely done. And he says it is finished. So that we would never have to. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Whatever we want to say about the complete destruction here in Deuteronomy 7, God himself in Jesus placed himself under that consecration, destruction, the harem. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus today, this is all a lot to take. But if you only go away with one thing, let it be this one, that Jesus went to the cross for you so that the horrors of destruction And judgment you would never have to face because Jesus already took the punishment. So will you today turn to him? It's never too late. All right, so let's let's now bring it all back to us. The only way, okay, and I want to really stress, the only way that a passage like Deuteronomy 7 applies to us today when it comes to war is not physical, literal war. It's our war with the sin in our lives as we live out being God's holy people. Now you see that being applied to us in a passage like 1 Peter 2, and you'll, you'll hear so many echoes of Deuteronomy 7 when you read this now. This is why we read the Old Testament, because it really helps us understand the New Testament. Look what it says about you if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You see, being holy has a salvation purpose. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, or as holy people, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Where is the war? Sinful desires. Live such good lives among the pagans, non-Christians, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us again. What is the purpose of this war? What is the purpose of holiness? For the sake of those outside. All right, holiness still matters for the people of God. In fact, I'd say it matters even more because holiness for Christians is not about externals, but about internals. And so we need to be reminded, don't we? That the New Testament speaks about this kind of total destruction war, but applies it in our battle with sin in our lives. That we are to wage this kind of war, ruthless annihilation kind of war against sin in our lives. What did Jesus say? If your eye causes you to sin, what? Gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, what? Cut it off. What does Paul say? Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Or John Owen. This is for Daniel. Because you read John Owen, Dan. He says, be killing sin or sin be killing you. So we've got to ask ourselves, as we hear God's word to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, how it translates to us, the, the question God is asking you today is, Have you been, are you radical with sin? 
Are you radical with killing sin in your life or do you tolerate it? Nurse it. Let it mix in with your life like chocolate and coffee. Or are you killing it, uprooting it, destroying it, annihilating it by the power of God? For me and Karen, we decided that social media, Facebook, Instagram really wasn't helping our envy, sometimes discontent, sometimes even anger, judgmentalism, bitterness, right? And some of the ads that pop up, lust, just wasn't helpful. So we decided that we would just stop using Facebook and Instagram for a while, perhaps forever, you know? I mean, what does it mean for you? I'm not saying this is everyone's application, but what area of your life does God want to target and say, hey, if you were to be serious about it, don't just get rid of it half-heartedly. Why don't you take a radical approach to killing it? But it's not just a war against sin. It's also a war against compromise. Remember, the purpose of this kind of war is that no compromise, no deals, no treaty, no taint, no mocker. And one way it does apply in verse 3, and so I do need to mention it, is when it came to, and God constantly comes back to this, intermarriage. Right? His people were not to intermarry with the pagan nations around them. Which means that we've got to be thinking, okay, relationships, dating, and especially marriage is one of the key ways that Christians today need to be thinking about no compromise. Because here's the thing, you cannot pursue love for God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, both as an individual and as a family, if your spouse doesn't love God with his or her heart, soul, and strength. I mean, that just, it just cannot happen, right? And that is the biggest area of compromise, one of the biggest areas to modern Christians, isn't it? That we don't really think too much about marriage, or if we do about marriage, we don't really think too much about dating, now, I want to be careful here. I'm not talking about those who are already married. Because some are married to unbelievers because you became a believer later on. Or maybe you just didn't know that this was something that God commanded and expects of His people. Or you didn't think it was important back then, but you know now. But you know what? If you're already married to an unbeliever, God wants you to stay in your marriage, to honor your marriage, to trust in Him. Even in spite of the situation, to keep pursuing Him, leading your kids to love Him as much as you can. That's what God wants for you. But here we're talking about those who have a choice. And the New Testament is clear. If you are single and you have a choice, whether you're never married, divorced, widowed, when you have a choice, the New Testament is clear. Marry in the Lord. Marry a fellow believer. And I wonder if there are going to be enough of us to stand up and say, I would rather never marry or never marry again. I would rather be single than compromise on that. Because I think this is one of the ways that God is speaking to us today. Let me tell you about James as I close. James was an ardent atheist. In fact, he prided himself as a young man to be able to argue and out-argue any Christian. He also prided himself as being moral. And as he looked at the Christians around him, he thought, you know what, I'm just as moral as them, perhaps even more so. I don't need to be a Christian, plus there's no reason to believe in Christianity because of all the intellectual arguments that I can, you know, 
out argue them about. And so James was like this until he met a colleague that he worked with. As a young man, he worked with someone who was older. This older gentleman was not, nothing like the Christians that James had ever met, in that he was older, he wasn't an intellectual, he didn't have all the answers, he didn't even argue. He wasn't particularly on James's wavelength in terms of thinking, um, thinking about philosophy and, and morals and ethics and all the you know, arguments and apologetics. But this older gentleman, this older Christian, lived a life that James could not answer for. He was so different, so genuine, had so much integrity, had so much love. It just showed James up to be completely unable, right, to be able to match his life as an atheist with this man's genuine life. It was this man's holiness that impressed James. And over the year, James began to soften towards not just this man, but also what he believed. And he began to make inquiries about the faith. And eventually, James became a Christian. James is my dad. And if he hadn't become a Christian through this older gentleman, humanly speaking, neither would our family have been. You know, remember... This command in Deuteronomy 7 has a bigger story of salvation. Israel's purity and holiness had a missionary purpose. And you see that in 1 Peter, right? You are to be holy, to declare the praises of him who called you. You are to live such good lives so that the pagans around you can see and glorify God. The world is not attracted to churches and Christians today. Not because the world is getting more secular. You hear a lot about that. Christianity is waning, you know, churches are going down, no one's becoming Christians anymore, right? Christianity is just not cool anymore. No, no, those aren't the reasons. The reason why Christianity in the West is not growing is because we as Christians have stopped living holy lives. Because we are content with a mocker, compromised Christianity. Because when they look at us, they just see slightly different versions of themselves, but really nothing that radical, because we do not care about killing sin in our lives, because we make the same compromises that the world does, and that is hurting our ability to shine for Jesus. So even if for no other reason than the missionary purpose of seeing your friends and family come to know Jesus, that today you take seriously this command to be holy, then that would be good enough, wouldn't it? But of course there are other reasons, and that is because God loves you, he made you his. You are his treasured possession. You are holy. So be holy. Let's get the band up. We, get, we need to sing. We're running out of time.